Minnesota. This is uh, Minnesota number 73, in which we will be talking about the best picture of 1975, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, directed by Milos Forman. Uh, so here's the thing. We're recording this way in advance, so maybe there's announcements. Maybe there isn't. I don't know, uh, but uh, I, I have no idea. It, it, if we do this right, you'll probably, you probably won't be hearing this till November, so hopefully you enjoyed Halloween times. Um, but... Yeah, let's just go ahead and get into the movie, but I will welcome in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh. Hi. How you doing? Good. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's sure what did. we're talking about today. Just one? Uh, just the, as far, look, hang on. Let me make sure. Let me just look at the title here. Oh, first word. It's one. one. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I attempted to rewatch the movie today. I got about mm-hmm. 20 minutes in, uh, and then I had Turned work. it off. Uh, yeah. Like, oh, hate oh, it. Disgusting. Uh, no, I had work to do and I was hoping to return to it, but I did not get a chance. Um, and, uh, I'll say this. I've seen this movie exactly once in my life and yet my memory of it is great. I remember a lot about this movie Hmm. and I think because, okay, so directed by Milos Forman, written by Lawrence Halbin and Bo Goldman based on the novel by Ken Kesey but also based kind of on the play by Dale Wasserman. So I, I was just looking at that. Officially in the credits, that. it says Ken Kesey. So was there a play and then Ken Kesey wrote a book based on the play and then they wrote a movie based on the book? I believe the book was first. Okay. And then they did a play uh, that starred Kirk Douglas. Okay. And then as Nurse they, Ratched. As, exactly, yes. Um and then they did. Uh, then they made the movie that's kind of based on both. Okay, so I guess that makes more sense. I, I the idea that the book was based on pre-existing material was very strange to me, um, but I guess that's probably not the case. Yeah, I, I think that's the order that it goes in. Okay, but um, that makes more sense. But yeah, so and I've I've uh, in high school I did a scene from I directed a scene from the play, uh, and. Uh, that was the only interaction that I had with the material. I never read the book. I've never even read the entire play. Hmm. But, um, but yeah, uh, when I think of this movie, I do think of a lot of scenes. And I have a very, I have a very good memory for most of the scenes. Hmm. Like, uh, there's a scene in which Jack Nicholson's character, Randall McMurphy, he wants to watch a baseball game and Nurse Ratched is saying, and everybody wants to watch the baseball game, but Nurse Ratched thinks it'll rile them up too much and she says no. So Jack Nicholson simply pretends that he's watching one on TV and everybody joins in and they get riled up anyway. And so, of course, she scowls at him as she does. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, other things where he's not taking his medication. There's a scene where he comes to realize that everybody is there voluntarily except him, which I think is very funny. Hmm. Um there's the scene, various scenes with um, Brad Dourif's character in a very tragic performance, um, and then the the ending, which I won't talk about right now. Like, 
there, there, it is, it is a definitely a movie with sequences and vignettes, and I think they are meant to be. It's not a typical three act structure. No, it's really not. It doesn't have like a, a clear plot through line. Yeah, it's more about just this world and and. I mean, would you call this a character driven movie? I think that that might follow. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a lot more ensemble based than uh, mm-hmm. one would think. Because even though there is officially a lead, uh, two leads, in fact, mm-hmm. um, every character is vital um, to the overall story, to the overall development of the, our main characters. Um, so it is character driven, but it, there are a number of, of characters that are driving and being driven. Um, and I was, and you know, at the very least, I was happy that I watched what I did because I was able to see early on, I was able to see how these mental patients are interacting with each other before McMurphy shows up and then afterwards. That's, hmm. I got in long enough to see, I watched it long enough to, to see the difference hmm. um, and see him start to introduce himself to these characters. And one thing, and I'm, one thing that I didn't remember is because when I think of the film, I think of kind of this kind of, you know, film is often very funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think of it as, you know, this anti-establishment film and that the the character of McMurphy just like takes so much joy in things that the film never feels, feels dark to me or depressing. Watching the first few minutes and seeing the lives that these characters are living is very depressing. And it, Mm. it, it like, it like breaks my heart. It's, Mental illness is something that that freaks me out. Just the idea that your that your brain can turn on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I look at, for example, when I look at my grandpa who died uh, after only having Alzheimer's for like nine months, when I look at that and I see what it did to his brain, and he didn't even he wasn't even really that bad off towards the end. Um, but when I look at that and I, and I remember like what an intelligent, sharp, strong guy he was before that. Mm-hmm, yeah. I just think like, you know, suddenly my little depression issues uh, don't seem like that big of a deal. But of mm-hmm. course, then I talk to people who have anxiety problems and I talk to people who, you know, uh, frankly, you know, have felt suicidal and just, and it's just so, it just see, it seems all so insidious that we can just be walking around and then through no fault of our own, like something happens inside of our brain that makes us unable to function, not even function, but unable to, to think the way we are, people are supposed to think or the way people are meant to think. And the first few, the the first few minutes of, of uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, I have such an appreciation for the performances that these character that these actors are giving, because these are characters that are in various states of mental illness, but are also heavily medicated. Mm-hmm. So there's that as well. Yeah, and it's just a. So I think even just in rewatching it, I found myself having uh, a, a pr- an appreciation of Milos Forman, who we've already talked about in our discussion of the 1984 Best Picture, Amadeus. Um, I 
think now that I've seen, now that I rewatched that and that I started rewatching this, I think I've determined that Miller Schwarman is really good at creating a world, often an insular world and inviting us into it, whether we want to be a part of it or not. You know, you want to be a part of the world of Amadeus, you know, it's so ornate and so mm-hmm. prestigious and stuff, but then you go into this drab, depressing, fluorescent light, uh, uh, fluorescent lit uh, environment of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and you're just like, I, I want nothing more than to be out of here. Mm. Um, and so then you get the Randall McMurphy character who wants to be out of there as well. And it's just like, Oh, thank God. But then you realize, Oh, he is a little bit unstable. Maybe he should, Mm -hmm. maybe he should stay here. (laughs) So anyway, I've been talking way too long about my own reactions to the film. Uh, what is, when did you first see it? How often, what's the most recent you've seen it? What's going on with you? I think I've also only seen it once and it's been a while since I've seen it. Um, uh, I feel like it didn't stick with me as much as it did with you. Not that that's any fault of the film, but um, yeah, I think when I saw it, I didn't know. I think I didn't know anything about the ending. And so I think I found the ending. Mm. I didn't like it. I think at the time um, didn't like it from an artistic standpoint or it just like, I don't like that. I think it, it just bummed way. me out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but but that ending is still very poignant because it sticks with me. Like I remember yeah. a lot of details from it that I doesn't seem like I would remember otherwise. Although also it's something that's been parodied a lot throughout yeah. uh, film history. So um, it may be just some of that that I'm thinking of. <laughs> One of the particular ones that I remember is... Uh, there's some episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There's one, sorry, one episode where they yeah. kind of parried it, which is funny because Danny DeVito was also in, in yeah. the original. Um, so sometimes I, I think there might be a little part of my brain that's supplanting that for the actual ending a little bit, um, <laughs> which makes me think I just need to see the real thing again. But uh, I yeah, know. I mean, I, in starting to watch it, I realized like I'm going to finish this thing. You know, I won't be able to finish it in time for the record. But I'm going to finish watching this because I need to have watched it again. Yeah. And I remember there being something kind of kind of electric about the presence that Jack Nicholson brings to that place. Yeah. Um, which is, is, you know, part of the intent of the of the of the story, I think. And that's uh I don't know, it's 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 strange. Like I, I feel like I think of him as not really fitting there which is a little bit on purpose yeah one thing that i certainly thought of at the i thought of at the time but i was also in high school and i didn't so i didn't think of this that much Mm. i think i was still at that time when you know you hear about a movie that everybody agrees is good and so you watch and you think like well if there's something i don't like the problem might be with me yeah um so there was so but there were certain things that I had a problem with and then there are certain and then I would go on to read several reviews and articles about the film uh and I think I w- I wouldn't have been able to verbalize this in high school but I think what I thought was it's really heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think it actually is that. But what I what I have come to read is that like there's a lot of characters act in a way 
in a certain way more because they are meant to represent something more than they are actual characters. When mm-hmm. you look at McMurphy versus Nurse Ratched, yeah. neither of them act 100% like a human being would. Yeah. But they do act the way an institution would. Hmm. You know, she is authority incarnate. He is free spirit incarnate with all the negatives that that provides and with all and her with all the negatives that, that provides. Mm-hmm. Like it, it deals a lot in representation and to a certain extent metaphor and microcosm. And um, and I think I probably had a problem with that. Um, and as time has gone on, that uh, that has persisted. And so the idea of him not fitting in, that's fine but not fitting in in a very specific way. It's like he doesn't fit in because he was never meant to. You know, it's like a big thing. It's like yeah. a, it's like a statement more than an actual function of the character. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's one of these characters that's almost like too big for the world, you yeah. know. Um and I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how exactly I feel about that. I feel like there, it's it's a little bit strange too that my part of my feeling about it is that I never really liked either of them that much. You mean uh, as characters? Right. I, yeah. I, you're obviously not supposed to like Nurse Ratched, but I, yeah. I don't feel like I side with him 100%. Like, yeah, take it, you know, I'm never fully on his side. Like, you show those authority figures. And not, I don't, I genuinely don't think you're supposed to. Yeah, I, think that's I don't where think so the, either. I, I think that's where the quality of the film does come in and yeah. the quality of the writing. And I think particularly the quality of the acting. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when you have scenes like the one I was talking about where he's meeting with everybody and it is quickly established that everybody there, no matter how extreme their circumstances, everybody checked themselves in. They all were able to recognize I have a problem and I need help. Mm -hmm. He was arrested and forced to be there. And when he looks around and realizes he's the only one who doesn't have that level of awareness, the look on Jack Nicholson's face, like it's one that I'll, it's, it's funny, but it's also this moment like where the character suddenly sees himself a certain way. And I think we do too. We suddenly realize, oh yeah, this free spirit, like maybe he is being like, maybe he is a little bit obnoxious and maybe he should be here. Mm -hmm. Like maybe as, as much fun as I was having with him, like there is a downside to the way he has fun. Yeah. And so I do think that that's, I think that that's intended. I don't think you're supposed to be 100% on his side. I don't feel like you are either, but I feel like something about something about the ending makes me question that a little bit because it, Oh sure. I could see that I could feel that ending as heavy-handed a little bit. Yeah. Now, how much should we talk about the ending? I don't know because I feel like if you don't know the ending, it is it is you're not expecting it. Yeah. So, uh so we'll we'll leave it and uh just say that yes, I agree with you. Um I can see what it's, I can, that ending, it makes sense on a character level, but it also, it, one could say it makes more sense or rather it, it fits in much more snugly with the overall theme. Mm -hmm. So that means that the ending is more about theme than about character, which is not the end of the world and it still fits with character, but I don't think it was decided as a function of character. Yeah. And it could be that. Uh, the sort of nuanced approach to the characters and and the uh, the balance there between whether we like them or not uh, may be more uh, something that's in the film mm-hmm. rather than something that's in the book. I could see the book totally being something that 
people latch on to that, uh, you know, stick it to the authority yeah. figure uh, mentality the same way that some people might. Uh, that's similar to appeal to like maybe uh, uh, Catcher in the Rye or something sure. like that, you know, where it, it appeals to a certain um, thumbing your nose at society attitude. Yeah. Uh, and may, so maybe that's that's what the story is. But Milos Forman as a director brings something a little bit more thoughtful to it. Yeah, I think so. And I do think that that is also where the actors come in because right, yeah. as as Jack Nicholson-esque as the character is and as as much as he does, you know, when we think of Jack Nicholson as a persona, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes about as a function of this film. I think so too, yeah. Um, just really charismatic, just, you know, but I think he's, he's playing more than just pure charisma. Like, yeah. you know, this was... It's like he may be, you know, young and wearing sunglasses and stuff and uh, at the Oscars and the way he the way we think of him. But at the same time, this is only a year after Chinatown. It's only five years after Five Easy Pieces, which Mm -hmm. is a wonderful performance. And only a few years after um, Easy Rider. Like he's still an actor and he still understands that I need to do more than just be cool and fun and goofy if I'm going to play a real character. And so I think he does a great job. Um one of the reasons that I'm excited to to continue watching the film is so that I can look at Louise Fletcher mm-hmm. as Nurse Ratched because when I was watching it, and again, I do think this is a function of the actors, when I was watching the film the first time, I also felt like I didn't love Nicholson's character the way I the way maybe I should. Um, but I also felt like she wasn't as pure evil as it would appear. Like She's trying to maintain order and she, yes, she's a control freak and ultimately that, that leads to some bad things. So she is definitely a villain, but, um, but more than anything, it's just like, there's a way that she does things and she tries to keep things nice and peaceful because that's what she thinks is best for the patients. Then somebody else comes along and screws up everything and it's going to maybe hurt the patients. So what do we do? And so... I can see things from her perspective, certainly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the dynamic of those two characters and and both and what they both represent, maybe more than what they actually are, is something that kept me from really embracing the film hmm. as much as as not as much as I should have, but certainly as much as the Academy did. Yeah. Um, so the film is only one of three to win the Big Five, which is. Picture, director, actor, actress, and it won adapted screenplay. Um, the other one we mentioned already, Silence of the Lambs, and another one we won't be mentioning for 40 more minisodes. <laughs> um, or is it 41? Uh, 41. 41. Um, and so, but it was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Brad Dorif. It was nominated for Cinematography, Editing, and Score. Um, part of me feels like it should have been nominated for art direction, but, uh, just cause, you know, when you look at that and realize that, oh, there's some, there's some color choices being made, which is to say the complete absence of them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, choosing to have certain types, certain types of furniture and placed in a very specific place. Like it feels like a mental institution that is lived in. Like one would, I think people have an idea of what a mental institution is, which is probably like, pristine Mm -hmm. and crystal clear 
or Arkham Asylum where it's basically <laughs> a dungeon. So it's one of those. And this isn't that. It feels like a real place. It feels but clinical. It feels clinical. But it also feels like, yeah, people, you know, they'll still sit there and play cards. They still will drink coffee yeah. and that sort of thing. So, um, so I thought it's uh, they do a really good job of, of establishing that. But um, so looking at the other Best Picture nominees, uh, we said in the last minisode, which again at this point might be a month ago, um, we said that 1976 had a really, really good slate of nominees. I think 75 is hard to beat as far as the the quality of the nominees. And I haven't even seen one of them, but the one I haven't seen, I've heard is still great, and it's by one of the best directors of all time. So the nominees are Nashville, Jaws, Dog Day Afternoon, and Barry Lyndon. I have not seen Barry Lyndon. I've seen all of these, yeah. Okay. Um, I've heard I would love it. I would like to watch it on Blu-ray one day. I'm sure it's what I've seen of it is beautiful. Yeah. Um, I feel like Barry Lyndon's one of those movies that is important for the way it looks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story's not real memorable. Okay. And I feel like maybe even Stanley Kubrick would have said, I don't care so much about the story. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, so, so yeah, so I feel like that keeps it from being a great movie. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think there's a lot of great in it. Um, but I feel like story wise, a lot of it's forgettable. Uh, yeah. But, uh, and it's been a while since I've seen Dog Day Afternoon. Um, I feel like that's one of those ones that's very, very energetic. It has some amazing performances. More than energetic, it's frenetic. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw it only somewhat recently, like probably three years ago for the first time. And, uh, I had heard I would love it. And indeed I did. I Mm. I thought it was really, really great. That's Sidney Lumet. Uh, one of the directors of the 1970s. Yeah. Um, Al Pacino in one of his big performances of all time. And uh, just a really, really, in many ways, it feels like Dog Day Afternoon should have come out the next year. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) I can see that. Swap out that and Bound for Glory and we're in good shape. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and that's, I think, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Do you like Dog Day Afternoon? I think I like it, yeah. Okay. yeah, okay, so then we have Jaws, which is currently my third favorite movie of all time, and Nashville, which is my first. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, I like those <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so looking at the nominees, uh, I've not seen Barry Lyndon, so I can't speak to that one. You have. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be good with Nashville or Jaws winning Best Picture over One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And if I'm thinking about it, I'd probably be okay with Dog Day Afternoon being nominated uh, as uh, being, uh, winning over One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. With Of all of those, I do, I specifically think Nashville, as much as I love Jaws and as much as it has maybe more than any of these changed the la- the landscape of film yeah. as far, like, just as far as like blockbusters and such. Yeah. Um, and... But I do think that Nashville, for a number of reasons, it's just such a, there's such a wider scope. And that's also one that deals with like characters who could be, and in fact are representative of something and yet never feel like anything more than just regular people that you're watching. Um, There's a lot I could say about Nashville and I won't, we've already done a whole mini soda about it. But um, so my, my vote would be Nashville. What do you think? Because I know you hate Nashville. I hate it. The city and the movie. Oh man. And everyone and the named show. Nash. No, you love the show. That's right. The show's fantastic. <laughs> that, uh, whatever that girl's name is, I don't remember. 
The one from Heroes. Uh, yes. Hayden, Hayden Panettiere. Panettiere. That's She's it. Electric. She's electric. All right. Um, I've never seen him. I've never seen that show. That Ronnie Blakely cannot hold a candle to Hayden <laughs> Panettiere. Um, I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I, I I feel like I'm torn between there's the ones that I like best, then the ones that I think are objectively quote unquote the best, and then the ones that feel like best picture winners because jaws doesn't really feel like a best picture winner boy it sure doesn't but i don't know there's something about it that's that's so enjoyable and it it works on so many levels and it's doing yeah. so many amazing things uh like in, in every in every area so yeah. it's like that seems like that should be your best picture, you know, like that's, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's about as close as you can come to a perfect film. Right. It's, and it's, but I've also, as, as we've said on the show before, I sometimes find perfect films to be a bit cold, uh, <laughs> because they're too, uh, hermetically sealed. Uh-huh. Um, they're not quite flawed enough. They're uh-huh. not flawed enough to let me in. Whereas <laughs> Jaws like it's it's a perfect film that just invites me in yeah constantly oh absolutely yeah and engages me in that kind of thing so yeah and uh, i was gonna say nashville nashville at first glance i say well that's not the type of movie that wins best picture but then in a year where one flew over the cuckoo's nest wins sure i i can see that you know like it's yeah. it, nashville's a little uh atypical like it doesn't it doesn't have a clear it doesn't really have a, a plot through line there's yeah. there's there's beats here and there but it's very much like it's almost an omnibus film yeah. in one in one film and uh it's it's like it's odd in a lot of ways it's not typical well and let me ask you this because this is a thing that we talk about from time to time so you just said like Nashville doesn't seem like a best picture winner, but in the year of one flew of the cuckoo's nest, maybe it is, is 75 when the seventies be- from a best picture standpoint is 75 when the seventies became the seventies because before that you've got Patton, you have the French connection, mm-hmm. but then you've got Godfather, the sting Godfather two. Then you have one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which definitely has an anti authority, authority quality, and then the next year, yes, you have Rocky, but you also have the slate of really cynical films that we've been talking about. And then you've got Annie Hall and Deer mm-hmm. Hunter and all these things. So, like, is it is 75 when it starts to – when the sort of – one could say the Oscars catch up with uh, with culture and society. It could be. It could be after, like, you know, a few years after the summer of 69, you know, and sort of the, the, the revolution that would have been happening then. I could see that. Like, the Oscars takes a little time to catch up. Um, although, you know, Midnight Cowboy won in 69. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, you, you could probably say that. Because there's definitely a shift. Like, the early 70s, there's still a lot of stuff that feels like old, old Hollywood. Oh, sure. I mean, certainly in the nominees. Like, the right. year that French Connection won, you know, Fiddler on the Roof was nominated. Right, which is totally... Yeah. Still old school, yeah. but then um, also Clockwork Orange was nominated, <laughs> right? It's I, I think I mean we'll get to this once we get down there, but I think like in the in the mid to late sixties is when you start to see uh, the just the way America was making films change. Yeah. I, I always talk about the the Graduate being kind of a linchpin for that. Like the Graduate feels like the first time the the whole country got behind a movie that was uh, 
yeah a decidedly different type of movie in yeah. a year where in the heat of the night which is a very straightforward kind of old hollywood movie but even if still, the subject matter it still is, deals with yeah yeah right it deals with a, with a harder subject matter but you short of the subject matter you could have made that movie in 1945 sure, you know absolutely um and so yeah but i think that shift begins there and I think just grows and, and gains traction and I think affects the way that people make uh, more straightforward old Hollywood stories. Mm-hmm. Like I think a movie like The Godfather, for instance, can't really happen without a little bit of the way things were changing right. in the 60s, which I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I think goes to a lot of the influence of European film that was coming in in the 60s. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think by this point the landscape of film has changed, and I think it. it I think you may be right that it has has grown into enough of the public consciousness that uh, they expect this sort of thing and they're excited by and award this sort of thing. Yeah, and to go back to Midnight Cowboy, like if you look at the movies on either side of it, it's almost just like what was right before Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like okay, Oliver, nice fun musical yeah and then it's like midnight cowboy what were we thinking Patton. <laughs> yeah we're back to okay we got it <laughs> it's, you know? it's hard to think how much uh Patton would have hated <laughs> midnight cowboy oh, no question about it <laughs> well and also one thing that that strikes me as interesting and the reason one of the reasons i like 1970 as a as a as an oscar year and we'll get to it obviously when we when we get to it but like um the fact that like you had two i don't remember the other nominees but you had two military movies nominated for best picture Patton and mash mm. like mm. they could not be more different yeah i feel like i feel like uh robert altman probably hated Patton. <laughs> probably. And i have no idea i have no doubt that the that george s Patton would have hated everything about mash <laughs> and robert altman and uh and so like even though personally i prefer i think Patton's a better movie mm. um and so uh yeah it's it's such an interesting time right now to like the next several best pictures uh, and ju- and the nominees, it's, it'll be interesting to just watch Hollywood try to evolve uh, and try to adapt. Yeah. And it does in a way that is, I mean, so many iconic movies came out of this time. Like we've yeah. already talked about several that, that I think, I mean like Rocky is such yeah. an iconic American movie. Um, I wouldn't call one of flew over the cuckoo's nest that, but it's still extremely influential. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, more so than I'd say several of the best pictures that came out in the eighties. Sure. And, you know, as we go back in time, we're going to hit several more that are that as well. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, so, okay. So let's look at some of the other movies that, uh, that were released in 1975. Um, a lot of really notable films, films that everybody has seen, everybody watches, movies like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I like. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it. I don't I don't love it. I don't There's, love it. I'll say this. I like a lot of the music. Yeah. Uh, I, I find myself listening to some of the songs, particularly, uh, what is it, at the late night science fiction picture show ah. <laughs> um, at the, at the late night double feature picture show. Pardon me. Mm. Um, that song is awesome. And I love singing <laughs> along with it. And I'll tell you what's fun is listening to that on your iPod as you walk around comic-con <laughs> because it's just like, I'm here. <laughs> everything they're listening, everything they're saying is right in here in front of me. <laughs> you know, there's Claude Rains as the invisible man, Leo G Carroll. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, you you were saying, yeah, you don't really care for it. 
I don't care for. I, I think you really have to embrace the camp to to sure. enjoy it. And I didn't so much know that the first time I was going in. I knew it was a cult classic. Yeah. But I was like, oh, this is not for me. I like the music and I appreciate the commitment of those involved. Yeah. Oh, Particularly yeah. Tim Curry. Yeah. Um, who plays it with gusto. He does. Um, so other movies, uh, Shampoo, which I've never seen. I've heard is really good. We have, you and I have seen A Boy and His Dog, which I love. Yeah. Um, I've seen Death Race 2000, which I do really enjoy. <laughs> but then there's Grey Gardens, the documentary. Grey uh, Gardens is great. I, I like that one uh, a lot. The Man in the Glass Booth, which is a, a movie based on a play written by Robert Shaw, who is in Jaws, um, and stars Maximilian Schell. Um, there's The Man Who Would Be King, which I've never seen. There's Monty That's Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, the Man Who Would Be King? Yeah. I've heard good things. That's John Houston, right? The Maybe. directed it? I think so. Um, I, that's, I, might be wrong that's a, that. I feel like that's a really big movie that I need to see. Like it's one that I should have seen by now. Um, then you get Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, you know, a big movie to come from this year. Uh, you've got Picnic at Hanging Rock. You've got The Stepford Wives, Tommy, which I've never seen. But I just saw also, Tommy for the first time recently. How was it? Weird. Okay. Uh, it works. It works pretty well as a movie though. Like more than I, more than I thought it would. I don't know how much I'm a fan of The Who. Really? Yeah. I feel like that might be a problem. Might be. It almost seems like watching The Wall, but you're not 100% sure how you, <laughs> what you think of Pink Floyd. Yeah. I kind of wanted there to be a little bit... I mean, Roger Daltrey's all over it because he's Tommy as soon yeah. as Tommy grows up, but I kind of wanted to see a little bit more of the rest of the band because they were just fun to watch. Like, if you don't like their music, yeah. you can still enjoy watching a Who concert because mm-hmm. they're so all over the place and, you know with the smashing the guitars and Keith Moon standing up and falling over and all that's like, uh, so I kind of wanted there to be a little bit more of that and there's not a whole lot of it, which is too bad. Uh, but it's interesting to watch Roger Daltrey act cause he's not bad. Um, and he, and he went on to act in, in he acted things, in other right? things. There's a, there's a version of comedy of errors that he plays, hmm. uh, two of the he plays a set of twins, hmm. which is strange to see. Um, but uh, yeah, Oliver Reed's in it. Hmm. Um, a lot of weird cameos. Some muse like other musician cameos. Some not. Um, but I think I think it's the sort of thing that works very well for. Um, I can't think of the director's name now. It's uh, it's uh, it did Altered States, and um, I don't know why that's the first thing that I can think of. Uh, I don't know why I can't think of his name right now. Ken Russell. Ken Russell. Okay. okay. Yes. Yes. Um, who I don't know that I like that much as a filmmaker. I've seen a couple of his things and I, I don't think I like him yeah. that much, but I think it's working in Tommy. Like yeah. I think something that's a little bit over the top, kind of sci-fi in a way. Um, I, I don't know. Hmm. I guess I got to see it. It's it, weird. Apparently it, it works better than I thought it would work. Uh, this was also a year when there were some movies that are like kind of known in like film snob circles, like Picnic at Hanging Rock, The Passenger, Solo. Um, Solo is one I, I haven't brought myself to see yet. Yeah, I guess I'll have to someday before I die and I'm sure it will hasten my death. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so looking at these, there's really not a bunch that I feel like our best picture type material. There's none that really jump out at me as, Hey, nominate me. Um, no, not necessarily. A lot of the ones that I like, I think I like, 
either because they're sort of genre stuff that works really well, or you know, like Monty Python is right. Is uh, that that's not <laughs> best picture material as great as a comedy of, of a comedy as that is. Right. And like Three Days of the Condor, I love, but uh, that's not that's more of a genre thing anyway. I've never seen it. Mainly, I love it for the uh, for the uh, Max von Sydow. Like I say, any movie with Max von Sydow, I'm. Did you ever see Extremely Loud and Comfortable? I didn't. Clothes? That's one. He's that, great in it. That's He's what I hear. For it. I know. I don't know. I can't bring myself to watch that one yet, but it's a film that I considered uh, in my review to be uh, immoral because uh, of the way right. it exploits our reactions to nine eleven. So, because there's no particular reason that the character, that uh, the main character's father needed to die in that. Yeah, it just knows that it can get a rise out of you for that. Kind of, yeah. I'm it's, surprised it's Disney sort of, hasn't done that yet. Hasn't done I'm what? I'm surprised there's not like a Pixar movie where we're sad about 9-11. Your opinion of Disney is incorrect. <laughs> like, it's it just, it bothers me so much. And by the way, they own your precious Star Wars now, I know so they do. Enjoy. Well, I'm not enjoy. happy about that. You'll love it if, for, if The Force Awakens is good, though. I'll, I'll enjoy that a lot, but I think they've got... I, I'll say Disney's got two to three good Star Wars movies in them, and the rest are going to be garbage. Not maybe, garbage. Maybe they'll start at, stop at two to three. That's not true. <laughs> no. Yeah. They're going to make Star Wars movies until Disney goes out of business, which is going to be like in 100 years or never. I feel like never. It, maybe if movies stop being a thing. Disney owns now Star Wars and Marvel. I think they're going to be okay. I feel like, I, I think what's more likely to happen than uh, anything happens to Disney is that we just start calling them Disney's instead of movies. <sighs> Your level of <laughs> cynicism is misplaced. <laughs> also, well, never mind. Okay. I'm not, I mean, Disney's done a lot of good things, but I don't think the same company should own everything because then, I mean, it's the same reason that all these superhero movies look the same because the same people are making them. No, I, I, I agree a hundred percent, but you are, but the way you approach Disney as the type of company that would exploit our association with nine 11. Oh, absolutely. You think so? Oh, Absolutely. Disney loves like to, have to, char- like have characters in a family film, like an animated film. I don't know if they would do it in an animated. Okay, film. maybe I that's think they think that was too heavy. But I think like easy there. I wouldn't at all be surprised if they were to like suggest it a little bit in there, because I think a lot of those Disney movies they they know how to emotionally manipulate people, and it pays off, and people love it. What Disney movies are you thinking of that are emotionally manipulative? Yeah. I think Up is emotion- emotionally manipulative. I think a lot of the Pixar movies are honestly, and I th- I I don't think that that means they don't have good like they have a lot of good basic mm-hmm. stories and characters. A lot of the things that I think work really well in them, but I think uh, for several of them, I think the reason people respond to them as well as they do is because they're being they're being manipulated a little bit. See, and I think um, I think most, not all, because I remember when I saw Cars two, I felt the manipulation specifically because they were manipulating me in a way that they had not earned by any stretch i didn't but I see think, cars too but i definitely felt it in cars one there was part when i was like oh and i was like wait a minute i don't care about any of these characters but i was feeling like connected to that moment even the even the first one like i thought like certain things like for example paul newman's character it's like well it's paul newman you yeah. know and just and he's able to imbue his character with some stuff but anyway mm-hmm. um but yeah like for the most part and i would say like even in up i feel like it it earns that especially when you realize that like I assume you're talking about like the first uh, few minutes, right? Yeah. And it's just like, okay, we're, we're seeing the building blocks for this man to be a cranky, isolated person. Mm -hmm. So we need to see 
that he did in fact have happiness. But you know, life happens. They they're not able to have children, but they still make a go of it, and they still and you know what, like. One spouse will always will probably always die before the other, and that means the one that is left will have a response to that and will be sometimes maybe even living in that response. Mm. And so it didn't seem manipulative to me. Like they did condense an entire life down, but I'm still okay with that um, because it felt earned to mm. me. Um, but anyway, uh, but then see, and like brave, I thought that you didn't see that I one. Like that, that one. one is visually gorgeous, but it's uh, but that one felt manipulative. Frozen. Now that's manipulative. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. Everybody, go watch Tangled. Tangled is so much better than Frozen. So much. All right, we've been going too long. Uh, five-year-olds so. all over the world disagree with you, apparently. Ugh. The one thing that Frozen has that I'll, I, will always, I will grant is that there are these two sisters and they have a relationship. And that's not a thing you see very often is a sibling relationship, much less two girls. What? Oh, I see. He was, uh, yeah, he was making a, I was, uh, I was uh, surprised for a minute that the, something like this. Yeah. Things really take a turn. Uh, Disney's really amping it up, (laughs) but, um, you don't like it. We're shoving it down your throat. So, um, so yeah, I feel like, uh, as far as one flew of the cuckoo's nest, I think you and I both agree that there are more deserving best picture nominees, but as far as the other movies of the year, I think we've got it in these nominees. I think we're looking yeah. pretty good. No, I think so. Um, so yeah, if somebody said, "Hey, I want to watch One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest," what do you think of it? Um, I don't love it honestly, but I think it's yeah. good. Yeah, um, I think it's an important one to see. I think it has an important place in the history of film. I think I would probably say, I'd say it's, I'd say yeah, it's really good. You should watch it. Though it should be noted. That these other movies that were nominated yeah. for Best Picture are also very good. Like, if you haven't seen Nashville or Jaws, I would honestly say you need to see those first. Although, who right. hasn't seen Jaws? Exactly. Um, but not a lot of people have seen Nashville. Maybe not a True. lot of people have seen Dog Day Afternoon. And I'm yeah. sure very few people have seen Barry Lyndon at this point. Maybe, yeah. maybe they should. Maybe I feel like should. most of the people who see Barry Lyndon are uh, Stanley Kubrick completionists. Probably, Which yeah. is easy because he didn't make that many films. <laughs> and yet I still haven't gotten around to it. I'm not, I guess I'm not that much of a, of a complete. That's true. You're not, you're not a huge, like, I know, I know you respect a whole lot of his Yeah, films, I love Strange but... Love. I think Eyes Wide Shut is pretty great. I've never loved The Shining. Mm-hmm. I've never, resp- I, I liked Clockwork Orange for a second. Um, it's not that I don't like it, but it's just, I loved it for a second and then I turned 17. Um, <laughs> and just like. I have a respect for 2001. It's just like, he's, he's a guy that I respect a lot, way more than I respond to. And I think because yeah. maybe I'm more of an emotional film goer than I would like, frankly, than I would like to be. And usually it's my really intellectual friends that really embrace Kubrick. And I can totally like uh, criticisms of, of him as a director that is cold are yeah. 100% accurate. Yeah. Like there are very few characters to latch onto in his movies. There's yeah. usually a lot of a distance from them. Yes. 2001 hardly has any characters in it. And the one that you remember the most is a computer. Yeah. Maybe the most relatable character in any of his films <laughs> is a computer. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I sometimes feel like his characters are just rats in a maze, and he's just sitting there staring at them, 
trying to figure out why are they doing what they're doing which and is, having no response. Which is why, and not to go down another rabbit hole, it seems so strange to uh, to take a movie like AI that he was developing and give yeah. it to Spielberg, who is the exact opposite, I think. But what's interesting is a lot of the choices that in the film everyone assumed came from Spielberg were in fact from Kubrick. Really? And while I'm sure like the sen- like any kind of sentiment, almost any sentimentality in there, people are like, ah, Spielberg ruined it. But if you look at like their correspondence and you look at the script, hmm. that was actually him. That's like it weird. was him trying to, it, it was almost like he was trying to make a Spielberg film and huh. he was working with Spielberg. Huh. You know what I mean? It's not just like, he was doing this all on his own and they took it and then he died and they gave it to someone completely different than him. Yeah. The two of them were working together. And so, uh, there's a, there's a guy who does, uh, there's a guy in Chicago who does, uh, videos known as the, uh, nostalgia critic. He's oh, infinitely yeah. more popular than I am. He has a really, really fascinating video about AI and his own expectations of it, his own reaction to it combined with his knowledge of Kubrick and his knowledge of Sp- uh, Spielberg, some of the best work he's ever done. Uh, for the most part, I think he tends to be pretty surfacey as a critic, but every once in a while he turns out something really, really great. And I think that AI thing is pretty good. So, um, okay, we should move on, um, to, well, we should move on to finishing. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.